The Overwhelmed Brain is a proud member of the Healing Broadcast Network. Are you annoyed by affirmations? Are you tired of being told... What? You want to announce something? This winner, in an epic tale of struggle and triumph... Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear of people not thinking positively. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do to help your country think positively. One man is forced to travel through parallel universes to save our world. Think positively and know that I am not a crook. From an entity so powerful and so manipulating that there may be no way to stop it. Read my lips. No new taxes because of positive thinking. You'll be scratching your head until the complex and bizarre ends. I just want to say, can we all get along? Can we, can we all get along and think positively? When the sinister villain is finally revealed. Think positively! Positive thinking. Rated D for denial. Coming to a podcast near you. If affirmations feel like lies and positive thinking feels like denial, then get ready to start creating the life you've always wanted now. This is Paul Coliani, host of The Overwhelmed Brain, the personal growth show for the critical thinker. On every episode, we'll talk about practical, down-to-earth steps to help you improve your mood and keep you sane in this powerful journey we call life. I want to help you bridge the gap between your emotions and reason, causing you to discover why you do the things you do and what you can do to reach higher levels of happiness and lower levels of stress and overwhelm. If you're here to learn more common sense tips for improving your life, you're in the wrong place. This is the direct path to uncommon sense, and that's why it's going to help you learn, heal, grow, and evolve. My ultimate goal is to help you become empowered so that you can create the life you want. So today's format's going to change a little bit. Just today's, we're going to keep the format that uh, we've been using in other shows, but today I want to play you something I recorded a few days ago. It's part of an interview I did with a fellow broadcaster named Eric Zimmer, and he hosts a show that you may know about if you're in iTunes a lot, and that show is called The One You Feed, and it's an interview-style show. It's sort of opposite of mine, but... It's along the same lines of a lot of the things that I teach. Now, like you'll hear in this interview, what's very interesting about this is that, and he admits this, he's very low-key. He's just this very passive, calm, pleasant person to talk to. And what happens with me when I talk to someone like this is that I tend to absorb that and ride that wave along with him. Uh, For example... Uh, Many moons ago, I interviewed someone named Clark Danger, and Clark came on the show all jazzed up and, hey, Paul, how you doing? It's great to be here. And I would say, 
Hey, Clark, it's great to be here. So glad you made it. <laughs> and my energy would rise up. And so I find it fascinating when this happens because this happens in real life too. Whenever you're around someone who has a different energy level, one of you is going to adopt the others. And when you don't adopt the other person's energy level, you end up out of rapport. Now, what I mean by that is you have good rapport when you're with someone and you're like them. Not only do you like them, but you are like them in many ways. Now, it doesn't mean that's the way you are when you're not with them, but usually your energy levels match. And what I mean by that is the tempo of your speech, your body movements, your body language, the things you talk about. It's something called matching and mirroring. When you're with someone and you match a lot of their gestures and their voice inflection, you end up building a rapport without even thinking about it. And a lot of this takes place subconsciously. You might wonder why some people get along with other people so well, because those people are probably unconsciously matching the people they talk to. And a good example of this is when I worked for a company and the telephone repairman came in, or I think he worked on the computers and the telephones. And I was the the main contact for the business that dealt with this kind of stuff. So he came over to my desk and as we were talking, I noticed that he was starting to stand like I was. Again, this a lot of this is unconscious, but I like to watch human behavior and what people do, and I kind of guess why they do what they do. It's just something that I do and have done for many years. So I noticed that he started doing very similar movements as me. And so I put my hand on my cubicle wall and I leaned. And then he did the same thing. And then I was like, wow, that's interesting. Um, then I crossed my arms. And then he did the same thing. He followed along. So when that happens, that tells you that you have very good rapport with someone. Now, there's other things that you can do, but I'm not really here to talk about rapport today. But I did notice that uh, Eric and I had a good rapport during this interview. And I wanted to mention that because it's a good example of what you can do to just get along with anyone you meet. If you meet someone that's really high strung and he's like, hey, check this out. I just went down here and I saw this thing. You can maybe ramp up your energy and say, well, what'd you see? You got to show me and see how they respond. They might get even more excited, but either way, it shows them that you really care about what they're talking about. And you are saying that you are like them. Now it sounds a little manipulative, but I'm telling you, this stuff happens automatically. This stuff happens without your conscious knowledge. And this is probably one of the reasons that you get along with the people that you get along with. You may not even know what's happening. You just happen to match their level of energy. So that's just one of the takeaways that I got from this uh, conversation that Eric and I had. You know, one of the reasons I wanted him on my show is because not only does he have a very popular podcast, but he's also gone through some struggles in his life. And I really wanted to know where he was at when he was a kid and what he went through and also what he did to get out of it. And, you know, we get into his use of um, drugs and alcohol and how he was in depression and what he did to get out. Now, what's interesting is that on this show, I only teach a few methods out of depression. And 
this interview was very humbling to me because I never teach the method of getting medication. And Eric helped me realize that sometimes things are so bad or sometimes there's a path that you just can't take because you don't know how to get there. And when the medication is available and it helps you get to a path of healing, even if the medication isn't exactly what heals you, but gets you to a place where you can start healing in other ways, either with or without the medication, then it's important to consider every resource you have available to you. So don't get me wrong. I'm not here to say take drugs for what ails you, but I am here to say that it's important for me and anyone listening to keep an open mind on the best path for healing, not only for yourself, but for other people. Because we know people that are, you know, in that funky state, in a bad situation, and they're doing the best they can to get out of that situation. Some people aren't. Some people stay in that situation. But you can tell when some people are really struggling and they're doing what they can. They're going to therapy. They're taking medication. Whatever they're doing, they're doing what they believe and what they know how to do. So sometimes you don't know what to do. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And we talk about that on this show today. So most of the show is taken up with this segment uh, with Eric and I's conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Now let's go right into the conversation with Eric Zimmer from the One You Feed podcast. Like I was saying, I don't interview much, don't have a specific format. I like to get to know someone and and figure out how your story can benefit people who listen to this show. And one of the things, well, the first thing that happened is I looked at your about page and there's really nothing at all about you. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to ask you specifically, uh, has anything happened in your past, any kind of struggles or anything like that? And you shared something that really piqued my interest. So I was like, okay, I don't do interviews, but you know, when there's an inspirational story or at least a story of from struggle to getting through it, getting out of that situation, I want to know about it. I figured, okay, let's get Eric on the show. I haven't talked to him. We haven't even connected at all in this other group. Let me ask you this. What is your overall philosophy behind your show? What message are you hoping to send to your listeners? I think the overall philosophy is just that we have choices in the behavior we take, the things that we think about, how we choose to view the world, and those choices you know, directly impact the quality of our lives. And there are some things we cannot control. And, but there are some that we can. And so it's, you know, feeding the good wolf is about feeding those things that are conducive to living a good life. Hmm. So go ahead. I know you've said the parable a million times, but for people who listen to this show, they may not know about your show. However, I think there is some uh, cross pollination of listeners here, but just in case nobody's ever heard the show, go ahead and tell the parable. And so they know what we're talking about. Sure. The uh, parable is that there is a grandfather and he's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. 
One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and he says, Grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. Mm. I noticed that a lot of the guests have a different take on that. What has been your favorite take on that parable? Or do you have one? Um, you know, I don't know if I have a favorite take on the parable. I think people try and come up with something different to say, um, to, to try and come up with something interesting. But I think everybody, when you boil their thing down, c- does come down to, you know, it's about the choices we make. Now, I think some people think that the parallel is saying something like you should starve the bad wolf or you mm. should shut him in a closet or you should shame him or and that's not really what the parable says the parable just says look you, you know this battle is going to go on they're both plenty strong but, you know but you, you you need to feed the one that you want to win and so that's the main that's the main take i think people when they take a slightly different take is to sort of say well you know you can't lock the bad things about yourself in a closet. And I know you talk a lot about, you know, your show is not about mindless positive thinking. And that's certainly something that we are, are definitely, you know, against also, or, you know, it's something that we don't, that I think is, I think is a a shallow response to pretty profound problems. So I think that it's, you know, the, the parable isn't intended to be like, only look on the bright side and only, you know, only feed happy thoughts. It's about, it, it goes a little bit deeper than that. Well, it reminds me of ego. I mean, ego itself is something that, in my opinion, can be nurtured healthily or nurtured in a way that is not uh, conducive to a positive life because you can feed the wolf, you can feed your ego. But I do believe that once you're feeding your ego in a healthy way where you combine your compassion with ego, where you think about yourself and others, then it's almost like you're feeding both at the same time. And, you know, I don't know if you should feed fear and greed and hatred, but at the same time, we just talked about positive thinking. And that's, that's something I was going to ask you about that because I think you have an episode on uh, pitfalls of positive thinking. Yep. That's an interesting comment because the ver- one of the first things I say on this show is, um, are you tired of positive thinking or being told to think positively? So, what is your take on that? What is your take on positive thinking? Well, I mean, I think like most things that catch on and enjoy widespread popularity, there is some truth in it. We perceive the world through our own filters and we make up stories about what things mean and what's happening all the time. So given that that's the fact, you might as well choose something that's positive versus negative if you're just making it up anyway. So in that regard, I think there's truth in positive thinking. You know, there's truth in looking on the bright side. I walk into a hotel room and I can look at all the things I like about it and all that, or I can find the one little part of the room that's got something that I don't like. Hmm. It, the view isn't exactly what I wanted, or boy, I wish that, you know, there are more pillows. So I'm, I'm, I'm framing my experience that way. I might as well choose to look on the positive things. I think the problem with positive thinking is at a at a at a pretty mundane level is that we don't always feel positive and trying to tell ourselves that we feel good when we feel lousy or trying to tell ourselves that something is great when it's not great doesn't work because we don't believe ourselves yes um then i think you get to the deeper level which is when is it positive thinking and when are you deluding yourself you know if you're in a if you're in a really terrible say 
uh, you know, let's take an extreme, you're in an abusive relationship and you keep trying to tell yourself how wonderful the relationship and how loving that person is because you're trying to think positive. Don't allow anything negative or you draw that to yourself. Well, then you're obviously living in delusion. And when that positive thinking is taken all the way to that extreme, which is like you basically attract into your life what you think of, that's really where I get most sort of bothered by it because it says things like, Oh, those people, you know, who were in Paris the other night out eating, they drew that to themselves. You know, the people that were seeing the band, they just, if they just had better thing, you know, if they just had better thoughts. And that's where that thing, when you get all the way to the secret or the law of attraction, I start to bump up against. But I think in its, in its, uh, sort of like most things, if you keep it in the middle, take a moderate approach to it, positive thinking has a lot of good uses. It's just not the panacea that it's often painted to be. Totally agree. I think positive thinking is a straight path to denial. And when you are covering any negative thoughts that you have with positive thinking, then you're just continuing to repress what really needs to be addressed inside of you. I prefer optimistic thinking. I really like the idea of, like you said, walking into a hotel and looking at all the, the cool stuff and just being positive about it, but noticing that something bothers you. And being okay with it, like that bothers me. That per- what that person's doing bothers me. And being okay with addressing it inside yourself instead of just like some religious cultures will tell you to do is don't think about anything negative. Only think about the positive stuff. And then they end up in psychotherapy 20 years later because <laughs> they lived such a restricted lifestyle. You know, I talk all the time on the show, you know, and the question I ask people a lot is, you know, how do you find the right balance between on one end there is repressing your emotions whether that's that you shove them down you pretend they don't exist or you 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 know cover them up with work or with alcohol and then the other end of the spectrum is like indulging in your emotions and feeling sorry for yourself and you know every everything that happens you're analyzing what does it mean to me and you know you're just this and and somewhere it seems like healthy people find somewhere in between those two places and so finding that sweet spot between those two, I think is, is the trick for me because either of those approaches taken to their extreme, I think gets us into trouble. I agree. And it's sort of like, um, going along the lines of letting go of the ego or maybe more along the lines of not seeking happiness, which many people try to do, but just seeking uh, peace or right. just seeking satisfaction that brings moments of happiness you know, brings moments of sadness too, and finding that neutral ground in the middle. I think it's a much more healthy outlook too, because then you're not bipolar in your responses and reactions as well. Right. Right. Exactly. What do you think of, uh, affirmations? Um, they're not something that I have used with, um, any degree of success. You know, there's some people I respect who who do like them. And I think there is something to be said for depending on the type of brain you have. And I have one of these types of brains that just tends to get stuck in negative loops. Mm. And it doesn't, I can't seem to just get out of them. Having something to repeat, uh, you know, a mantra can be helpful. It can be a way to, to give your brain something else to do. I mean, I do something a little bit different. Um but I think in those cases, something positive to repeat or to, to, to rest your brain on is helpful if you get stuck in those negative, negative feedback loops. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not ones that have worked for me because I think that we tend to frame affirmations in the sense of, 
we don't like the way our body looks because we're 20 pounds overweight because we've been eating like shit and not exercising for six months. And we keep trying to sell, tell ourselves that we look great. Um, and it just doesn't, it, it just feels like in, inside, I just, the whole time I'm doing it, I feel like my BS detector is going off in my own brain and it's yes. going, I don't believe you. So that sort of affirmation I think is, has never been useful for me. But I, like I said, I do think there's something to giving your brain something to hang on to besides negative thought loops. Something you said that was key was that doesn't feel right to me or that doesn't feel good to me. I forget how you worded it, but affirmations tend to create resistance in my body when I say them. Like, right. I am a multimillionaire. And then what? I don't believe myself. <laughs> right. You know, right. I, I am, I am healthy and, and confident. I mean, I feel good about that, but <laughs> there's right. other things that I've said to myself that just don't work. So I've decided that a lot of these affirmations are just designed to um, trick yourself. And I, I get the uh, idea of faking it till you make it. I used to do that when I was a kid. Fake it till you make it. And I, I call that role modeling now. You're just role modeling something, someone else Yeah, that does something successful that you like. And I think that's a very healthy way to, uh, to build your confidence and your self-esteem, your self-worth, or rebuild your self-worth. But I do like... The idea, I do like what you said about affirmations because once you say these affirmations and you don't feel good, they're kind of having the opposite effect. Right. Yeah. I think there's some study somewhere that shows, shows that also that if you're trying to affirm something that you're, that you just can't believe that your, your brain is just like, that's not true. You just end up feeling worse. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about you, Eric, is that as soon as you start talking my energy level like reaches a calmer place. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It must be the the vibe you uh, put out there. It's like we're having an NPR conversation here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I I tend to be sort of low key in the. I, I'm, I'm. I sound more asleep than I actually really am when I talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good because uh, I think people like that. I, I, I've heard people listen to my show and they go, you know what? I turn your show on to go to sleep at night. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> yeah. But I get it. I get it. I think it's the, um, the low bassy rhythm of the voice. Yep. Yeah. It's soothing. Yeah. You have a soothing voice. I, I think that's what's going to happen. When people listen to this show, they're like, oh, this is making me calm and tired. <laughs> <laughs> Right, for the past several episodes, we've talked to Asha, who is an independent Legal Shield associate. If you don't know what Legal Shield is, it's a service that you can get at a low monthly rate. It's like I think uh, Asha is paying $20 a month or so. And what that means is that she doesn't get billed on the clock for legal services. She just pays 20 bucks a month and she can talk to lawyers anytime she wants for no extra fee. So I ask her a different question every week just to find out more about the service and share it with you because I highly recommend this service, especially if you're going through anything where you feel powerless, where you, you feel like you have no choice but to give in. And I don't want you to be in that position. That's why I am so supportive and I promote this service over and over again on this show because 
it gets you out of the mess. It gets you out of that situation where you might feel powerless. So anyway, this week I asked Asha of the people that she talks to and refers Legal Shield to. Uh, is there a common characteristic or trait that she finds in people that uh, benefit from this the most? And here was her response. One of the things that I've learned, and I think this is true, the people who have the least disposable income often, sadly, tend to have the least amount of power. They don't have attorneys on retainer. And all business people in our greedy little corporate world, (laughs) I know I'm terrible, but um, they know this. You know, corporations and even people that are just not ethical, they know this and they take advantage of those people every chance they get because they know the people don't have good resources. They don't have the money to spend. You're not going to fight some billionaire. He's got 16 high dollar corporate attorneys. That's going to cost too much out of your pocket, but you sure are going to go after the little guy who you think doesn't have any idea what he's up against and you think that you can finagle him. They get taken advantage of all the time and that's the whole premise of Legal Shield and why it was founded was to give the little guy a chance at fair legal representation. And they do it and they do it well and I'm I'm very very happy with them. You know, at the beginning of every episode, I say I want you to be empowered. And that's what I want for you. So if you have any situation that you think is going to require legal service or you just want to get that protection, that legal insurance, contact Asha and just ask questions. She's not a hard sell. All she does is talk to you about your situation, answer questions that she can answer and just let you know if Legal Shield would be right for you or not. So to get a hold of Asha, go to getoutofthemess.com. When you arrive there, you're going to see a little picture of her at the top of the screen, and it's going to have her contact information, which is uh, Asha at getoutofthemess.com. But you can also fill out the contact form there and just ask her questions. You know, she's not a lawyer, so she can't answer legal questions, but she can answer a lot of questions regarding if you might benefit from having the service. So uh, if, you, if you're not on the web, you can call her at 678-355-8777. Let me ask you this. You've had uh, struggles in your past, and this is one of the reasons I wanted you on the show. I don't know how open you are about your past and like one of the biggest struggles were, but are you willing to share one of your struggles from your past? Sure. I mean, my two primary struggles over my life have been drug addiction and depression. So, or drug addiction, alcoholism and depression. So take your pick, take your pick. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which started first? That's a good question that I don't (laughs) think I know the answer to. Um, I would say probably the depression started first. I was not a, um, I was not a well-adjusted, happy child. So I would guess that that probably predates it, though I never would have had the words to call it depression. But yeah, I would say the depression probably preceded the I mean, the alcoholism and drug addiction, which didn't really get started in earnest till I was 18. Yeah, when you had more access. 
Probably. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I had, um, I mean, I, I, I drank and did drugs a little bit early in high school and did them very strangely. Even then, I can look back and go, that wasn't normal. But I didn't do it. I didn't do it a lot. And then I, I got involved in something. I had started a tutoring program for inner city kids in my junior year of high school, and I saw what drugs and alcohol were doing to those kids' lives, and I was like, nope, not doing it. And so I kind of went straight edge for a few years until I uh, hit a situation that caused me to say screw it and i took a drink and i was off to the races i mean it it was like a it was yeah it was like a it was like a a switch flipped wow so it's kind of like dormant inside of you and then suddenly one drink just like you said flips the switch in your back yeah i mean in my case i think it was just a bunch of things came together all at one time that you know just allowed me to be off to the races Mm. and i you know i don't know that i was sober very often you know not under the influence of something hardly at all for the next probably six seven years that's a long time i mean a, a lot of people still drink like my stepfather has been drinking since i was one and i'm 46 or 45 now so I don't know how he has more blood than alcohol in his system. And I don't know how he's still alive. But yeah. I, I think of doing that for six years where you're hardly sober. And I go, that would kill me. That would I'm just, I'm a lightweight. But when I hear my stepfather who's been doing it all his life, I just like, how do people survive? We're supermen. Our bodies are incredible. Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, and the good news for me, I guess it's one of those you could spin it either way. But I think the good news for me is that I'm an alcoholic and addict of the type that just tends to burn the house down very quickly. Mm-hmm. It's like, like I said, it's not like I drink really heavily on weekends and I would take the week off or that I only drink in the evenings or I mean, I just kind of go full tilt 24 hours a day out of the gates and that and that that causes it to come crashing down around me sooner. And I, I think in some ways that's a benefit. Really? To people, well, because there, there's a lot of people I know that are able, you know, who drink more than I would say is probably healthy for them, physical health and mental health. Right. But there aren't any real significant consequences from it. Their life just holds together fine. And so the compelling reason to make any change just isn't there. And so that can go on 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, and that's, I think that can be, that's why I'm grateful for me that it led to hard drugs and, um, you know, it just, everything fell apart really fast for me. So I, it was very clear I had a choice to make and it was about, you know, getting clean and sober or probably dying. At the very least, I had a lot of jail time that was coming. And so I was kind of forced into um, a way of life that is far better for me. Mm. You give me such little time to talk about all this amazing stuff that you're bringing up. <laughs> Jail time. You know, one thing that occurred to me is when, or do you know exactly what caused your depression in the first place? Can you think of a series of events or a situation that happened I, when you were a kid? Or no, I have no idea. I mean, it runs in my it runs in my family. So, um, I come by, you know, there's a genetic disposition to it. It appears, or if it's not genetic, I think it's actually both. I think it's genetic and it's passed down through behavior and actions. Um, my mom suffers from it. I think she was very depressed Did you ever when we were younger. Oh yeah. Well, that's what I was wondering is, did you ever experience her depression on yourself, either through lack of attention, lack of love, lack of feeling significant? 
Probably. My, my, one of my things is I remember very, very, very little before the age of like 16. Um, it's just kind of a big blank. So I don't really know. I mean, I can look at the way I behave and I can look at the way I react to things and all that. And I can make some suppositions. Mm. I can hear people describe what my family looked like to them from the outside and all that kind of stuff. But I can't really say, Oh, I remember X, Y, or Z. I certainly had all the symptoms of somebody who, um, you know, felt like they, they were neglected or didn't get their needs met. I mean, and you know, I don't have any, I don't hold anything against my parents. I think they did the very best they could at the point they were at. I mean, I've got a 17 year old son and I've done the best I can with him, but I'm sure there's going to be something when he's my age, he's going to be saying, well, if my dad had just, you know, I don't know what that thing is, but there's surely something. And so, you know, I, I don't really, I think looking back on that stuff is interesting as a lens to try and understand what can I do to work with it so it makes it better? I don't, I haven't found it to be too useful looking back on it as anything other as a, you know, is a way for me to take responsibility of here's how I am today. What, what caused that? How can I change it? But I've, most of my progress in life and recovery and getting better has really been more focused, I think, on what am I doing in the moment than what am I unearthing about my past? And in my case, it's, there isn't anything to unearth because I can't remember it. So that, that, you know, that doesn't give me a lot to work with. Well, especially if you're, if you're okay now, then there's probably not too much of a reason to look back and figure things out. If you're, yeah, I mean, I think, I I mean, I think I'm okay now, right? I mean, um, how do you feel? (laughs) I generally feel pretty good. Um, but I mean, depression is still a part of my life. It's not gone. I don't think that, I think I'm, I think I'm a person who in the same way that I think I'm an alcoholic, you know, I think I'm always kind of going to be an alcoholic. And that what that means is I just don't think I can drink safely. I don't think it means much more than that, really. A lot of people morph it into being a lot of things. I think that just means I can't drink safely. But I don't think that's going away. And I would be thrilled if the depression uh, totally lifted and went away. But that hasn't been my experience. It's, you know, it's there. It's far more manageable it's not there all the time, but I think I just feel it kind of cycle through. It feels, you know, to me, it feels very much like there's something chemically happening in my body because I can't ever tie like, oh, I feel depressed right now to this event, that event, this thing happened, that happened. It's just like it, it feels like a, you know, women get their period every 30 days and there's hormonal changes that come with that. I feel like I don't know what the time rhythm is, but there's some cyclical nature to my moods. And, you know, I go through troughs where I'm like, yep, okay, yeah, I I recognize this feeling. But there was a time when you were more depressed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. And you were down. I mean, I went through a period about two and a half years before I started recovering from that. And I have my own experience of it. And I'm curious about what the experience was like for you, if you remember it. You remember being depressed? I remember my my major episode, uh, you know, what I would consider one of my major episodes of depression as an adult was when I was probably 29 or 30. And my marriage ended. I had a two-year-old son at the time and my marriage ended. And um, it ended in a very surprising and sort of shocking way. I was also taking interferon treatment for hepatitis C that I had gotten from, you know, being a intravenous drug addict. Mm. And all those things came together to just sort of throw me into a pretty deep tailspin. And I can remember that my depression for me is, um, 
it's just a deadness. It's not a sadness. It's not like, oh, I'm so sad about this or I'm, it's a deadness. Like I can tell it's sort of creeping back when I can't find anything on Spotify that I want to listen to, or I can't find a book that I want to read because normally, or a podcast episode I want to listen to. Normally it's like, I, I'm tormented by how much there is I want to do. And I go, what am I going to do? I want to do this. I want to, oh boy, I'd love to do that. But when the depression comes in, it's like nothing, none of that stuff sounds good. Mm. And I think that's yeah. just, you know, the, I guess the clinical term is anhedonia, right? The, the inability to receive pleasure from things that normally give you pleasure. That's what my depression is like. It's this real flat, tired, I can't concentrate. I can't make decisions. Um, I don't want to do anything. It's just a, de- you know, I just refer to it as being sort of, it's just sort of a blankness, a deadness. And so that's what it feels like. Now it never gets, for me these days, it never gets severe enough that I'm not able to just keep trucking through it. You know, right. I just kind of, um, at least at this phase in my, my life, I tend to treat it like the emotional flu is what I call it. Because when I'm in that space or, or, you know, I know people who wrestle with depression, if you get into that space and you decide that's the time to really start examining your life, that can be a rough time to do it, at least for me, because everything is so negatively colored. Clouded, yeah. Right. So what I do when that comes on is I just sort of think about like, well, what's it like when you have the, a cold or the flu, right? It's a similar thing. The world just doesn't look good. You don't feel good. You, so I just kind of take care of myself. Um, hmm. maybe slow down just a hair. And then a couple of days later, it just sort of rolls on its merry way. And I'm kind of back to, back to myself. That's a great perspective because a cold passes, you know, depression, these episodes, they do pass, especially if you've had them before, then you have references. Well, I know this depression passed and I'll be back to my merry old jolly self or whatever <laughs> your homeostasis is. Yeah, I think it depends, right? I mean, I I think that I treat my depression, right? I've treated it for years and some of that is medicinal, some of that is lifestyle, but I treat it. And so then when it flares up a little bit, I can look and go, okay, am I doing the things that I'm supposed to do that I know are good for me, that I know help with this? If I am, then I go, here it is, I'll just ride it out. If I'm not, it helps me get back on, I try and get back on some of the things that are good for me. But I think for people who have not successfully treated their depression, you know, riding it out can be a bad idea because, you know, that may not clear if you don't, you know, I I think that's what you're saying. Once you've been through it a bunch of times, you can kind of recognize it and work with it more skillfully. Well, that and knowing that it will pass because when you're in a state or when I was in depression, it just felt like it was never going to go away. Oh, yeah. And I think that's one of its... Uh, signature characteristics is that you believe it's always going to be this way. Yes. That's a problem. When you have that lack of emotion, when you're not connected to any emotion, you lose all sense of meaning and purpose. Right. That's right. Yep. That's exact. That's a great way to put it. So we're running up really close to our mark here. And I want to know something that you did or a series of steps that you took, whether it was a mind process, you know, a thought process, or just a point in your life where you went, I've had enough. This is what I'm going to do to get beyond this. What steps did you take? What process did you go through to feel better? Well, I mean, I think I eventually at one point, you know, one of the big ones for me was I went, okay, this is, um, I think I need professional help for depression from a medicine perspective. 
And I did not, I made that decision after I had sort of tried everything else that I could think of, read about, you know, exercise, eat good, take St. John's wort, sleep more, you know, what, what, name your litany of things, right? I'm doing all, doing all of it and I don't, I'm not better. So I think that was a big one for me was to, was to go and do that and get on the medicine and, and accept that that was part of who I am. And I think there's a lot of people out there and there's a lot of movement and there's, you can hear a lot of noise that says that those medicines are not the right approach, that, you know, there are other things you can do. And I believe all that is true Mm. in certain cases, right? In my case, it wasn't, it it wasn't a diet thing. It wasn't an exercise thing. It just was a, it has something to do with the way I'm wired. It's the same way with, with alcohol. I mean, I got sober when I was 25 the first time and I stayed sober for about nine years and then I went back out and I drank for a few years and the reason I got into that was because I was looking at my life and I went you know what look I um, I'm taking good care of myself Um, I've you know I've learned I've done all this therapy I'm just a better person I make good decisions about eating I'm very successful professionally so you know I was just a kid back then I bet I can drink you know I bet I can drink I'll just make good decisions around drinking doesn't work in my case. So it wasn't, you know, I was not one of those people that could become moderate in their drinking if they got enough therapy or if they had enough green smoothies or, you know, it's just, I'm not, that's not the way that was for me. And that's not the way my depression is. It's it, at least till now, I, I, I never rule out, you know, what could change in the future. But for me, the big step was accepting that I probably needed to be on the medicine and putting in the effort with the doctor to find something that worked. Excellent. I mean, you, you found the right choice, obviously, and it's been helping. Yeah. Oh, it's helped a lot. And I, you know, I go through periods where I think, okay, maybe I, you know, I think I'm getting ready in a period to try and maybe see if working with a doctor, if I reduce the medicine a little bit, what things look like. But I think, I just don't think there should be any shame around that. There, there seems to be this, if you take good enough care of yourself, you shouldn't have depression and shouldn't need medicine. And like I said, that's not true for everybody. Well, some people don't know what they don't know. And it's like, if I don't know what I don't know, then how do I heal? So right. maybe medication will help me get to a point where I finally know what to work on. That's right. Yep. And I think it can be that. It can be just a stabilizing thing that helps people stabilize to the point. Yeah. Um, but it's not for everybody. And that's in the same way that I don't think medicine's for everybody. I just think it's all this stuff is we can get on these shows. You do it and I do it and people write about it and blog and all this stuff where we share our experience and what worked for us, but everybody is different and everybody's got to find out for themselves this works or that doesn't work or, you know, and, and it's just not, it's not as simple. I, you know, I think you, I heard you, you know, on one of your shows, you know, sort of joking about if you just want the five tips to, you know, X, Y, Z, it's like life. I don't think life works that way. I don't think there's five steps and everything's fine. Um, I think it's, I think it takes more from us each individually and that's based on what we're like, how we're made up, what our past is, what our physiology is, et cetera. I had one on the five steps to denial. <laughs> <laughs> that's usually the kind of steps I teach, um, just as a sarcastic thing. Right, right, exactly. One of the most powerful steps out of my depression was, and it came out of nowhere, was admitting that I hated, absolutely hated my stepfather. And I had never hated him. But it was so buried, so deep in there, and it took something to shock my system. And that was when uh, this girl that I eventually married, 
and eventually divorced, was going to leave me for the first time. And I was like, you're going to leave me? Why? And she goes, I can't be around you. You're always depressed. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm working on it. I'm trying to heal. Well, call me when you're ready. And then I just lost it. I, I just buckled and fell on the floor and started crying. And out of the blue, I just, I don't know what it was. I just touched on a repressed emotion that was in there of hatred. And when that came out of me and I cried it out, it was like the very first peace I felt in a long time. And, and I realized, yep. I realized at that point, I need to express more of this crap inside of me. And when I started doing that more and more as the months went by, you know, it took about a year to get to a point where, wow, I'm not feeling depressed when I walk down the hall and go to the bathroom at work. I'm not feeling depressed when I'm driving in my car. Such right. a, such a different uh, state of being is powerful. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I was saying, talking about medicine and that was, has been part of the answer for me. The other part is a lot of what you're talking about, which is learning how to work with my emotions and my thoughts and express what needs expressed and, and all that. That's an equally important part of it for me, perhaps, you know, probably more important. Well, that's awesome, Eric. I have a thousand other questions for you, but I know we're limited on time. So why don't you, well, first of all, thank you for showing up here. You're a, busy, oh, thank you're, you. Oh, my pleasure. You're a busy guy. You've got um, a very popular show. Like we were talking earlier, um, our shows seem to cross paths in the rankings. And it's neat because when you go to my show, you'll see listeners also subscribe to <laughs> the one you feed. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yep. And, and I think it goes the opposite way. It, yep. It does. So I, I, like I said, I think there's some cross-pollination in our listeners, which is great because I, I love and appreciate people who just put a message out there to help the world. And that's one of the most important things about you and why I wanted you here. And I rarely interview, but you changed my mind on that today. So I appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Paul. It was a pleasure. So where can the listeners find you and your show and your website? Oneyoufeed.net. It's O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. And are you, um, do you want to mention anything? Do you have any books coming out? Anything like that? No, nothing. Uh, you know, I do some, I do some coaching work, which I know, you know, is something you do yeah. beyond that. No, the show is the main focus. That's what you'll find there. Great. And if somebody wants to reach you for coaching, um, how can they do that? Uh, if they go to same place, one, you feed.net, there is ways to contact us for a variety of different things there. Perfect. And I looked up the one you feed.com and it, apparently that's for sale for like 10 grand or something. So that's probably <laughs> still a little out of the price range. <laughs> so sorry you didn't grab that URL, my friend. <laughs> I tried. I tried. It was already gone. Well, okay. One you feed.net. Eric, thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Have a good one. Okay. Bye. All right, that was Eric Zimmer from the One You Feed podcast at oneufeed.net. And the one thing he said that uh, I really want to address right now is how, you know, perhaps some of us can be pre-wired for a certain disposition like depression. And it's, it's really hard to accept that. It's really hard to accept that we are hardwired to feel 
in a bad way or in a way that is unwanted. Because if we accept that we are hardwired to feel that way, then we lose the power of choice because it's taken away before we even have a chance to address it. Now, he may be right. He may be right that we are hardwired. I tend to believe that it's inherited, but maybe not genetically. I'm probably 100% wrong, but you know what? It doesn't matter because my belief is what helps me through tough situations. And beliefs are so important when it comes to things that you don't want in your life. If you don't want depression and your belief is that you are hardwired for it, then it's going to be a lot more difficult to make a choice to not be depressed. Not that depression is a choice. I never chose depression. I didn't even know about it until it happened to me. But having the belief that you're not hardwired helps you keep your options open. Again, yes, some people may be hardwired for depression. Maybe it's a chemical makeup. Maybe it's the way our neuronal circuitry is structured. Or maybe it's just something learned from the people that took care of us when we were growing up. And a lot of this can ride on what you believe. Now, does what you believe serve you? And that's one thing that uh, Eric really brought to light is that his beliefs that medication would work to help him through his depression worked. His beliefs helped drive him through and get him over some of the tough stuff in life. Beliefs will drive your behavior and empower you. And beliefs can also disempower you. So what are you going to choose to believe? For example, if you've experienced depression and it still comes and goes, or you're experiencing it now, what do you believe about that depression? Do you believe, well, it's just the way I am and it's never going to go away? And if you do believe that, how empowering does that feel? It doesn't. I know it doesn't. I've tried that on. (laughs) It does not feel empowering to go, it's just the way I am. Some people have diseases or crippling injuries, and they know those things aren't going to go away. So how can beliefs help you then? Well, this is where you come to acceptance. This is where you go, I accept that this is the way it is. Now, what acceptance does is eliminate or at least greatly decrease the resistance in your mind and body. When you decrease resistance about something you don't like, what you don't like isn't amplified in your life. Does that make sense? If you don't like to be depressed, then don't resist that you get depressed. Don't resist it. Know it happens and know it will pass. Now, I know what some people might be thinking, well, mine never passes. I always feel that way. Yes, I get it. I've been there. I was there for two years. It never seemed to go away. But you know what? People get over depression. Even if you know you're hardwired to get it, people get over it. And it may come and go after you get over it, just like with Eric. But people do get over it, which means there is a way. There's always a way. So I don't say this because I know everything. I say this to help you cement the idea 
that your beliefs will make it happen easier, will empower you to make different choices, to make different decisions. You know, one of the things I help teach with uh, getting out of depression is changing your routine. With depression, you really don't want to do anything. There's no meaning in things. You don't feel your emotions. But I guarantee if you filled a bathtub full of ice and stepped into it, (laughs) you're going to feel something. And what I call that is shocking the system. It interrupts your routine. It interrupts your daily patterns. You know, it's not the solution, but it's an idea. It's implanting the seed of an idea of changing what you do in either little ways or big ways so that it shocks your system. I really love the idea of shocking your nervous system, not literally, but figuratively or at least metaphorically doing things like if you think you can only walk a mile, then set out to walk five miles and make it happen. And when you're tired at the end of two and a half miles, knowing you have to turn back, walk another half mile and then go, okay, it's time to turn back knowing that you're too tired to make it. But putting yourself in a position where you have to do it. And maybe you'll get to a point where you get angry, where you connect with an emotion that you thought wasn't there. Or even if you knew anger was there, just connecting with any emotion brings you just a tad more out of that depression. And then when you're connecting with that emotion, you can start to see the world differently. Like Eric and I talked about, being clouded or seeing the world through a filter when you're depressed. How can you sort through your life's issues if you're depressed? You're looking at the world through a different lens. So when you're able to connect with emotions, even if it's anger, even if it's fear, that's the point to connect with anything else that may have been repressed. And the more you shock your system, the more you put yourself in situations where you interrupt your patterns and What I mean by that is if you get up at eight, take a shower, make breakfast, get ready for work, drive your car to work, come home from work, eat dinner, do some laundry and go to bed, that pattern is a rut, that stagnation. And I know most of us have to have this routine so we can pay the bills, so we can get through the next day. But I say find something that interrupts that pattern, even if it's something small. Some people work out. Some people go outside and take a walk before they do anything else after they get home. Now, another thing that you can do that's pretty powerful in interrupting your patterns is listen to music that incites emotion. Is there a piece of music in your past that can usually set you off emotionally? Now, what I like to play is something that makes me feel sad. If I can find music that makes me feel sad, it really helps me connect with that emotion. Some music makes you feel happy and sometimes, uh, like Eric was saying, that he looks for music and he can't connect with anything. But over and over again, I hear from my coaching clients and friends that music can really help connect with your emotions. The problem is when we're depressed, we don't want to play music. In fact, it almost seems like we just want to stay in that space. I've been there. It felt like I just want to stay in that space and do nothing. So maybe what needs to happen is that you set a timer on your radio to automatically come on when you know you're going to be depressed when you get home from work or whatever. Setting yourself up so that things happen that will help you connect with your emotions. 
So I know these are all simplified things that I'm telling you. And some people's depression is a lot deeper than others. Eric's depression was probably a lot deeper than mine. And he found ways to cope and deal and get out of that. But he still feels it every now and then. It still comes back. It's like the alcoholic who takes one drink. And that's what he he went through. He took one drink and then he was back on that wagon again. And, you know, I remember what depression feels like because every now and then a little bit of it will try to come back. And what I do is I go, whoa, (laughs) I take a step back out of my head and go, whoa, what are you doing? I've been there and I never want to go there again. I never, this is my attitude, I never want to go there again. And just like Eric says, he trucks through it. It's sort of what I do too. I just truck through it and I say, hell no, I'm taking over. I act like the adult in my life. Say, hell no, you're not coming back. I'm taking over. I will take care of this situation. I'm not going to get depressed. You're not going to stop me. I, I get mad. And then I, I pop in to this other state of mind. And that's a great pattern interruption for me. Because what typically happens when depression starts to kick in is we go, oh, I'm starting to feel down or, or I know this depression's coming back. And what are you doing to counter that? So I've talked about depression before. Go ahead and pull up those episodes if you want. And definitely, if you haven't been able to get out of depression, seek professional help. Seek someone. I always recommend the very first step, at least to start the process of letting things go, is explore your past and remember what you felt ashamed by or angry by. Remember someone that you hated that maybe you wanted to kill, you know, bring up these maybe immoral thoughts and emotions just so you can connect with something that's so deeply repressed that when you can start connecting with shame, embarrassment, guilt, all those things, you might start to figure out what created it in the first place. Again, this is simplified. Everyone's different in how they became depressed. So certainly seek professional help if you need it. And at the very least, Find someone safe to express some of the hard stuff that happened to you in life. And of course, keep listening to this show because you might just hear one golden nugget that starts the process of healing for you. So thanks again, Eric Zimmer with The One You Feed at oneyoufeed.net. And we are out of time, so we're not going to get to our last two segments that we typically have because we filled the show with all kinds of stuff about depression. <laughs> Exciting stuff. No, it was great to talk with Eric. And thank you for listening to this episode. Next week, we'll be back with our typical show where we have a quote and Ask Paul segment where I read a listener email. And of course, what's in the box. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again. Until next time. Over here at The Overwhelmed Brain, not only do I do what I can to reach as many people as possible through this show, but I get asked to coach one-on-one for specific issues that you're having a challenge with. If you're stuck emotionally or have a decision that you just can't seem to make or just want to feel empowered again and you're not sure how to get there, reach out to me and I'll give you my undivided attention and support. Well, 
I do that now through this show, but when we work one-on-one, we can address your specific challenges and figure out what steps that you can take to start your process of healing and growth. Whether you need a nudge in the right direction or an overhaul, coaching with me may be what gets you out of the rut and into forward momentum. Go to theoverwhelmedbrain.com and click on Coach with Paul. Progress is right around the corner and I look forward to working with you personally. Now my disclaimer is that this show and my coaching is no replacement for therapy. I just know what I know. So let's all just agree that I'm only here to entertain you (laughs) and all the positive effects that you're feeling are just coincidences entirely unrelated to what I talk about here. And with that, if you want coaching in an area that you're stuck in in life, just reach out to me at theoverwhelmedbrain.com and click on Coach with Paul. I want to thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. December 1st, 2015 is closing in. If you're interested in joining the TOB Inner Circle, go to theoverwhelmedbrain.com and click on TOB Inner Circle. The waiting list has quite a few people on it now, and I'm also speaking with other coaches to join in on occasion so that they can bring value to the group as well. If you haven't heard, the Inner Circle is where we can connect in a private group where we hold a couple of group coaching sessions every two weeks or so, not just with me, but with those other coaches that I mentioned that have their own specialties too. You could become a TOB luminary and be a part of this special private group. So let me know if you want in or if you have any more questions. Click TOB Inner Circle on the website today. And for those of you who've already filled out the form, I did receive your information and I'll be reaching out to you very soon. I want to thank everyone who has purchased a book or a worksheet or used the Amazon link to shop as you normally would, which gives us pennies for every dollar you spend. Your contributions and shopping habits are making a difference. So thank you. And thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in the overwhelmed brain. I also want to thank Asha, who shares real stories of the legal challenges that her and others have gone through and how Legal Shield was able to resolve them in no time. Less stress, less worry, and lots more peace. If you're in the U.S. or Canada, get out of the mess by calling Asha. She'll fill you in and let you know if this service would benefit you, which I know it would. You can visit getoutofthemess.com or send her an email at asha at getoutofthemess.com. She can also be reached at 678-355-8777. And finally, to close this show, let's stop talking about depression. (laughs) In fact, I've started something that uh, I've not ever done in my life, and that is a gratitude journal. Now, this is something that's a little strange for me because... I typically don't feel grateful for too many things. Now, before you get me wrong, understand where I'm coming from. I am grateful for everything in my life. I'm grateful when the sun's out or the rain's out. I'm grateful for pain and pleasure. I'm grateful for everything. So it's hard to have a gratitude journal when you feel this way because Being grateful for everything is sort of saturation. There's no dichotomy. There's no polar perspective of the world. 
So I've decided to back off a little bit and stop being grateful for so many things, which sounds weird, and choose very specific things to be grateful for. And what I found is that it really helps me with my perspective. One thing that I did recently was I was coming out of the grocery store and they were collecting、uh, money for the, I think it was Veterans Affairs or Veterans of Foreign Wars or something like that. So I decided to give money to them. And I usually just walk by and try to ignore people that are asking for money, but I decided to practice being grateful. And when I was walking by, I realized what our soldiers, what our armies and navies and marines and air force, what all these military organizations are doing. And I just felt so proud and grateful and decided that, yeah, I need to contribute. So I gave money. And then、uh, when I came home, I wrote that in my gratitude journal.、Uh, I wrote my gratefulness towards. The people who protect this country. And I gotta tell you, it's a good feeling to be grateful. It's funny because I'm, I'm grateful for everything I felt, but when I pinpoint and really think about very specific things that I'm grateful for, it puts things in perspective and allows me to get in touch with gratitude on a deeper level than just being grateful for anything. It's sort of like when you say, I love you to the person that you love every day. I love you. It just becomes a word or just becomes words. I love you. But when you really look into their eyes and say, No, I really love you. And this is why. That makes a huge difference in both their life and yours. Taking the time to focus and isolate that one moment to really express something special. Puts you in an entirely different place than something that has become routine. So that's my lesson for today. I started a gratitude journal. I don't write in it every day, but I am practicing, and it really helps me feel good about myself. Do you have to start a gratitude journal? No, I won't make you do that. And you can certainly do that if you want, but what I want you to do is be aware of the saturation or routine in your life. And change it up. When you give someone a compliment, don't just say, hey, that's a great shirt. Say something like, wow, that's a really great shirt. And then when they say, thanks, you can say, no, I really mean it. That is a great shirt. Very nice. <laughs> Maybe it's not a shirt. Maybe it's their hair. Maybe it's something else. But you get the idea. Spend a little more time every now and then just to pay a compliment or be grateful, be appreciative. Feel loving towards someone, spend a little more time than you normally would, and see what response you get. I bet you it feels pretty damn good. And with that, open your mind and step into your power and be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, And this is something I absolutely know to be true about you. You are amazing.
And in case you're wondering, yes, I am grateful for you. You are also in my gratitude journal.